This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and boy, do we have a wonderful interview for you today. Sometimes meeting someone is just meant to be. I felt that way about my best friend. I felt that way about my husband. And I felt that way when I first exchanged emails with John Summers Flanagan. He's the real thing, a great guy, easygoing, smart, supportive, humble. And his book, Suicide Assessment and Treatment Planning, A Strengths based approach is a must read for mental health clinicians. And I don't say that often, maybe even rarely, but in my opinion, it's a must read. I know not all of you are mental health clinicians, but this is a really great book. He's focused on talking about suicide with his clients or just people in a way that I'd actually done as I learned through the years that the way I'd been taught in graduate school didn't work. For example, making a suicide contract. I talked in last week's episode about my own thoughts of how important it is to normalize the fact that many people have suicidal thoughts. Many people, whether or not they're diagnosed with a mental illness, go through times when there's just no light at the end of the tunnel, or they can't see one in that moment or that day or that week. These people need connection. They need support. They need acceptance of where they are. But even if you're not a mental health clinician, John's ideas, his very specific ideas and structure of how to talk to someone about thoughts and fantasies of suicide or just dying in general may help you. Because as I said last week, you might be that one person who someone risks talking to. John would be quick to say that he and his wife, Rita, have worked together on this book and they're a team. And so they are co-authors. And they've included other suicide researchers as well in their teachings. So you're about to hear information that I know you're going to find inspirational, helpful, and vital. In my opinion, with the suicide rates growing as exponentially as they have, we all need to know how to reach out to someone who may reveal to us that they have those dark thoughts. And we need to not judge not be scared, not be frightened, but know that we can offer support not for the act of suicide, but for talking, conversation about having those feelings. It's been well proven that talking about suicidal feelings does not increase suicide's likelihood. It simply does not. So I hope you'll listen in today. And of course, if you yourself are suicidal, we have the International Suicide Prevention Hotlines available to you. First, let's hear from one of our sponsors who makes self-work possible, Athletic Greens. What better time than now to decide that you're going to do something for yourself in 2023 that will only add to your sense of well-being? where you can begin every single day with an act of true self-care. Not a bubble bath, not even a therapy session, but by drinking one glass full of 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food-sourced superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I use it every day and love this habit because if you're like me, self-care can get lost in a day full of kids, work, meals, and whatever else comes along. 
AG1 knows that people who listen to self-work are seeking to make their lives better. So Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Become your own green machine in the first hour you're up and around. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health in 2023 and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now, here's my interview with John Summers Flanagan. You know, John, I was told about you and your book and your approach to suicide assessment through a virtual friend of mine. I've never met her. She is the mother of a young man who killed himself after actually a school incident where one of his friends had called the school and said he is suicidal and the counselor pulled him in and he said, oh, no, it was just a weird night. I'm just fine. And so she's been searching, obviously, for answers. And she said, I've never heard an approach more pragmatic, more eloquent, more complete than John and Rita's work. And so I immediately ordered your book and immediately reached out to you and said, can I use your materials in my teaching? And you graciously said yes. So welcome to self-work, really. Welcome, welcome. Well, thank you very much. And I did listen to the episode with you and... Aaron. Uh, yeah, yeah, you and Aaron. I, I listened to that episode um, and I've never met her either. And so I feel like after having listened to the episode that that's high praise uh, coming from her given all that she has been through. Um, and so, yeah, thank you. Now, I want to point out this book was written and and you, you do research with your wife, Rita, right? Right. Yes. How long have y'all been doing that? Well, let's see. Um, Rita and I will have been married. Um, you know, it's, it's always a math problem. I have to think about <laughs> it. But, uh, 37 years in December. Oh. Okay, great. And so we've been working together, uh, but you know, both obviously as partners in the family, but also we have common interests in psychology and counseling. And so it's great. We get along well uh, every once in a while. You know, the first the first line, um, if in the first draft, usually Rita thinks that whatever I've written needs a lot of editing, uh, <laughs> and so we go back and forth and. Uh, it's good. It's good for growth and it's uh, good for collaboration. Now, are both of you also therapists? I mean, do you see clients or are you, do you t- both teach or what's the deal there? And you're in Montana, we, is that right? Yes. Yes. We're in Montana. We, I, I teach at the University of Montana um, in the Department of Counseling. Rita previously taught in the Department of Counseling here at the University of Montana, but she retired about six years ago. Um, and so she's not doing a, a lot of uh, psychotherapy or counseling right now. So let me ask you a question. What is the most common mistake you think mental health clinicians are making when they are assessing or trying to assess suicide? Yeah, I, I think I would try to capture that as uh, more of an attitude as opposed to something that's a concrete strategy, although I have some 
critiques of the common strategies that we use. But one of the messages I try to give our uh, our students in the in the counseling program is we should be we should have an attitude not of fear, not of dread, uh, but really we should look forward to the possibility that our clients or people we know would share with us about some suicidal thoughts because if we don't know, then we can't help. Right. And so in some ways, I think having that attitude of acceptance, of normalizing it and saying it's not unusual for people to have thoughts and feelings about suicide. Not at all. It us- yeah, it usually represents possibly depression, certainly distress and important things to talk about. And so I think I would try to get clinicians and also just uh, everyone, school counselors, um parents, families, just to not dread it, not be afraid of it, to mm-hmm. say, oh, this is a this is a communication of distress. And I want people to be comfortable enough with me to share their distress. Uh, and so I think I would just say, let's begin there um, and, and welcome the sharing of distress. Yes, it's not something that you hear it and you, then you go into panic mode about you know, what should I do next? And am I going to be sued if I don't do the right thing and all this kind of thing? So I, I really picked that up from the book that it is that it is a good sign frequently. I mean, I would say probably 100% of the time when someone reveals to you this kind of thing. I, you know, I've also done a lot of research in uh, destructive perfectionism, and I know that often those people wouldn't even tell you that they were tired, much less <laughs> would they struggle to tell you, you know, would they would they open up about su- suicidal thinking. And that's another reason why I was just so excited about your approach, because that sense of normalizing it, that sense of giving people an emotional space that's nice and safe and and that where we can talk about anything kind of thing is I think those people would warm much more readily to this kind of conversation rather than, I mean, you know, I've had my own patients say, well, if I tell you something, are you going to call the police? And, you know, and I said, well, I, you know, I can't guarantee anything, but I never have <laughs> at this point <laughs> in 30 years of, of work. So, um, there, there's a sense of sometimes dread that the therapist has to hear about it, but also a lot of confusion about what you'll do or, or the patient is confused about what you'll do with the information. Absolutely. You make a great point. And one of the biggest fears that clients or patients have is that if I share with you that I'm thinking about suicide, you're going to hospitalize me. Boom. Exactly. Boom. Call the police, have me evaluated, taken away. Um, and there are a number of reasons we shouldn't do that as clinicians. Um, the first of which hospitalization is linked to higher suicide rates. Exactly. And that's not for everyone, right? I mean, there are many times the hospitalization is helpful, especially if it's done collaboratively as opposed to coercively. And so I think it's, it you know, to be able to, like you did, say to a client, oh, well, uh, that's possible, but I've never done that. Um, and what's important is for us to talk because my goal is to help you feel better, to help you have a more meaningful and uh, enriched life. And I know if you tell me that you're suicidal, that means there are some things going on that don't feel very good. Exactly. 
I mean, really don't feel good. Yes. You know, I, I also, I love um, Edwin Schneidman's work about psychic. Can you talk a little bit about, because I saw that, I went, oh, I think we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, I could talk a long time, but one, uh, one little anecdote is in 1973, he wrote the definition of suicide for the Encyclopedia Britannica. And his definition included the fact that suicide is not is neither an illness nor a sin. And and what I like about that is, well, we do know sometimes suicidality is associated with a mental disorder or a particular problem. But I feel like that message is really welcoming. Right. It's like, oh, it's it's not an indicator of those things. Uh, it's an indicator of what he referred to as psychic, which is incredibly intense emotional and psychological pain that usually comes from some part of living. And it may not even be, it could be that the person is just in a really terrible life situation. Right. And it's not about something inside them, right. but that they're feeling that incredible psychic or distress. And then the second part that goes with the psychic, which I know you know, is when people are in that kind of immense pain, Schneidman said, then they have this experience of mental constriction, where all they can think about is continuing in their pain and misery, or stopping the pain and misery through death. And we also know that from later research after he made that theoretical statement, there's a fair amount of research that suggests that the higher the pain or distress that people are in, the less creative they are, the less good they are at solving problems. They start to see things as either or. Um, and that what some of the more recent researchers call it is problem solving impairment happens. I'm taking notes because I'm I learn a lot from people I interview, so there we go. Yeah, yeah and I, I, uh, I know that I've, I've never met Bessel van der Kolk. I would love to one of these days, but I've certainly watched a couple of his seminars, and he talks a lot about how the DSM folks um, have pushed the medical model of depression and the medical model of everything else, uh, PTSD, and um, he finds that their ability to incorporate anything like psychic or developmental trauma is something they're just so uh, opposed to rather than keeping in, in this case, keeping suicidal thinking. And I, I reread the exact criteria uh, in the DSM five the other day. And it, it is if they want to keep that something it's as another box you check rather than as something you explore and want to increase this this problem solving ability you want to decrease that mental constriction and and ins- you know and help someone and understand that that's what's happening with them so can you speak to that at all yeah i agree that the medical model has been promoted and pushed too far onto emotional and psychological problems Certainly, there can be overlap, and we don't want to exclude the possibility that people meet certain diagnostic criteria, which sometimes can be useful for treatment and research. 
Um, but yeah, the idea that, um, was so, so the idea that it's a checklist that you can somehow check off. And one of the things I went to a recent behavioral health, um, seminar and there's some people, you know, in a hospital medical center setting, and they're very proud of having integrated and woven in this behavioral health initiative into their medical model. And as the woman's going through what they do, she says that they've got three minutes for suicide assessment. (laughs) Well, that's certainly enough time. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're not going to explore a lot of psychic and or problem solving impairment in three minutes. Um, And so, yeah, it's a bigger issue than that. Did you keep your mouth shut or what did you say? (laughs) Well, you know, I yeah, I said three minutes is not very good. And yet it's better than nothing. So, I mean, just, you know, I have a friend who, who's a emergency department doc. Um, and one of his perspectives is, you know, he wants to do uh, gunshot wounds um, and he wants to do medical emergencies. And he says, now we have to ask about suicide. And he says, it's terrible. Like I'll have people talk to me for an hour about their suicidal thoughts. And I'm like, I can't stand this, which is to me, it speaks to, well, we need mental health clinicians in the emergency room, in the emergency Mm -hmm. department to field those people with those issues and to treat it much more sensitively than my friend whom I would love to have him. If I had a gunshot wound, be the person who takes care of me. But if I'm suicidal, not a great fit. Not, not he wouldn't be your choice. I mean, I'm sitting here imagining someone talking to me about their gunshot wound. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I don't know. Anything. It goes in. It hopefully comes out. I mean, I don't know anything about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, something must happen in there. I don't. Yeah. 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 Do I? You know. Yeah. I don't think you want me to cut you open. And. <laughs> But you're right. Well, okay, so let's move into some of the particulars of the book or one of the teachings. By the way, the book's name is Suicide Assessment and Treatment Planning, a Strengths-Based Approach. And Strengths-Based Approach. And this is the book for because this will eventually hopefully be on YouTube. And um, so you talk a lot about teaching emotional regulation. Um or if you want to go somewhere else, we can go somewhere else. But I thought that might be an interesting thing for self-work listeners. What, do you, what, what are you encouraging uh, mental health clinicians? to? How, how are you trying to encourage them to work with their clients toward understanding and learning how to emotionally regulate? Emotions are, yeah, <laughs> emotions are a big topic. It's a, it, it's a central part of who we are. Uh, and yet I think it is one of the most puzzling parts of being human. And it's one of the things that many of us struggle with, right? Mm-hmm. We, and an emotional dysregulation, of course, is associated with suicidality. And if you look at some of the uh, work of Marsha Linehan and dialectical behavior therapy, she has some pretty clear protocols to help people with distress tolerance, emotional regulation, and really advocates some uh, mindfulness sorts of approaches to help people to get a little in distance from their emotions so that they have a chance to, to think and 
handle those emotionally disturbing states more constructively. Emotional dysregulation means you have emotions that you you don't know how to handle. They they govern you. Would you would you agree with me that that's a that's a working definition of emotional dysregulation? Yes, yes, and that they feel out of control. Right. And they often feel mysterious and puzzling. And and like you said, they seem to govern us as opposed to us feeling in control of them. Yes. And you see, you used distress tolerance. Again, that's that's a term that we use in psychology. But my definition of that would be, I don't like being sad or I don't like being angry, but I can feel that and not try to escape it. I can just be with it. I can just realize that's how I feel and let myself feel it. Yes. And in some ways, that's super important because what you're describing is you're honoring the emotion. You're honoring the feeling. Let's say let's say we've been in a long term relationship. We break up. Um, Probably both of us feel tremendously sad and the emotions, you know, they get triggered like when, you know, I hear someone else named Margaret or when I yeah. pass by someone who reminds me of you or I go to a restaurant where we went um, and I get triggered and triggering is like, you know, having just uh, my emotions are boom, suddenly they're big yeah, and I feel yeah. really sad and I think I might just start crying in the restaurant, right? And I have uh, done that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. And and what you're saying is one of the one of the emotionally regulating things, or like we call it, distress tolerance. And that means that I feel that rush of big and disturbing emotions, but I'm able to tolerate it. I'm able to deal with it. I'm able to sit with it and maybe try to understand the meaning of it. What what I have a lot of clients struggle with is the fact that when they feel that way, they feel like they will say to me, but I think I'm getting worse. I think that this is the way, let's say you got a divorce and then all of a sudden, three months later, you've been doing pretty well and then you get hit with this wave of sadness or being pissed off or, you know, you, you, you realize how many you know, financially what your system, you know, things are going to be like for you, you get much more worried. And there's this sense of, you know, this feeling is taking me all the way back to when this first happened, like a, like a magnet pulling you backward kind of. And one of the things that I try to help people understand is those, our feelings come in waves that come in things that, and it is not a a relapse. It's not a, a worsening. It is just the nature of, uh, tolerating difficult feelings that you're going to get. Um, and suicidal ideation, suicidal thinking is one of those. Right. You think, oh, I, I, I have this licked. And then if you have the tendency towards suicidal thinking, um, you know, I'm a kind of a plain spoken kind of person. I'll say it's kind of like a gum on a wheel. You know, if the wheel keeps going around, you're going to find the piece of gum again. And, yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's you identify it better, maybe more quickly. And then, you say, but I, you know, why am I feeling this way again? And it's, you know, it's going back and talking about it and trying to say what, you know, what could have possibly triggered you. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I like a lot of what you're saying about like emotions come in waves. I mean, that normalizes it, right? So yeah. that when the wave comes, the person doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, I'm getting worse or I'm going crazy. Uh, people will have funny thoughts about emotions because, again, like like you said, they might feel pretty good for a couple of months. And that's one of the reasons it's you know, we have a disorder called post-traumatic stress disorder. Exactly. It's like you might be doing okay for a while. But then, boom, suddenly, several months afterwards, you start to get hit emotionally. Um, and so to tell people that, yeah, it comes in waves, it sometimes will be hard to understand what's going on. Uh, but almost always, and Judith Beck said this from the cognitive behavioral perspective, that if we know what people are thinking and experience, their emotions almost always make sense. Yeah. Uh, and so if we can kind of pull back and get a little distance from it, we'll be able to figure out, oh, this is what's going on. Sure. It's this restaurant that's triggered me. It's the financial problems that have triggered me and brought me back into the pain of the divorce. Uh, and so then if we can feel a little more rational about our emotions, I think that can be overall a very helpful thing. So I imagine when people are sitting here listening, and now I will say this, this, your book is written for clinicians. Um, but I also think it would be helpful for other people to read. But let's say, okay, when are they going to get to talking about what if one of my friends was suicidal or what, how would I know if my child was? What should I do? Uh, what are the signs? Um, what, I mean, you list some that are in a very, uh, complete manner. Um, you know, what I have stressed um, to my uh, listeners is that in th this, these are the markers or the markers you're talking about are ones for classic depression. I think there's some other ones for this sort of destructive perfectionist. But, but can you talk, can you answer that question? What should people be watching for? Uh, th your question is great. I wish I had a perfect answer mm -hmm. for it. I don't. Because one of the problems is that there are no really good predictors or signs as much as I wish I could say, well, for example, I could say a previous suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. That is probably the biggest sign that we have statistically, right? That if someone has made a previous suicide attempt, they're significantly more likely to die by suicide or and or to make another attempt. So we know that, um, and yet if they tell you about it, <laughs> what's that? If they tell you about it, if they tell you about it, yeah, we know that statistically, and we know that with a person if they tell us, right? But even so, there are many people who have made an attempt, and they have a little bit of a epiphany, or they feel like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm alive, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not just a previous attempt; it's a previous attempt plus dissatisfaction or anger or un unhappiness about having not completed the first attempt. Whereas some people who make a previous attempt will have learned something in the process and bring it into their lives and then embrace life more fully. So, so what I would say is that there are signs, right? There are things to look for. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing to look for is change from what you think you've usually seen in your relationship with this person you love or care about. 
Another thing to look for is any sign of distress. If people are in distress, and if we were going to use Schneidman's word, we'd say psychic, right? Mm -hmm. They're, They're in pain. Now, different things cause pain for different people, right? For athletes, for some athletes, an injury can completely overwhelm them. Right. And bring on lots of suicidal thoughts. Um, and they, being in an athletic culture, would be quite disinclined to share that. Exactly. And so we know that loss is another thing that is pretty strongly associated with distress. And then distress is pretty strongly associated with suicidal thoughts. And again, one of the things we know is suicidal thoughts are not a great predictor of death by suicide because they happen so frequently. Which so is my something best... I don't think people realize. Right, right. They oh, yeah, don't I mean, realize I... how much people think about killing themselves. I, yes. I, I just think that there is a gross misunderstanding or ignorance of that. I mean, yeah. I've talked to hundreds of people over 30 years about having thoughts even when they were children or now or teenagers or whatever that that it's it's sometimes they're a little sheepish about telling me but often they'll say i just i really need to talk to you about this because it's you know and 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 we'll talk and and you had some great points on how to do that in your book so it is um maybe people just don't want to think that that exists maybe they just it it goes counter to what they think you know, is normal behavior. Right. And people, yeah, yeah, people, it does run counter. I think people want to pathologize it, right? They want to make it an illness. Right. Or they want to make it something terrible and bad. And when we think about it as something terrible and bad, if that gets conveyed to the whole culture, all of the American society thinks suicide, bad, suicidal thoughts, bad. And then they equate the two then people are less likely to talk about them because they'll think there's something wrong with me or bad about me if I've had a thought about suicide. Well, as it turns out, you know, 30 to 50% of high school students think about suicide sometimes right? and are bothered by those thoughts. Um, How often do they talk about that? Not very often. And this is one of the problems in schools is that then they try to do some suicide assessment in the schools. And if the student admits to suicidal thoughts, they've got this really rigorous protocol. Right. And that's just not a good fit for everybody. And so one of the things that we know, there are programs in our Montana schools and we have very high rates of suicide in Montana. Hmm. And so we've got these programs where um, the students are uh, filling out these questionnaires. And on the questionnaires, hardly anyone, I mean, the questionnaires that the school counselors and the school psychologists get, hardly anyone admits to suicide because they know what's going to happen if they do. On the anonymous questionnaires, we got really large numbers. Yeah. Bukus. Yeah. Wow. And so I think that students in schools, as well as adults, um, it's, it's a little bit back to what you had said about the fear that people have that if they share the thought, there will be some kind of coercive medical action right. that takes place. Right. My wife and I, and my wife actually came up with the idea that 
we want to implement um, to complement. We don't want to take away suicide screening in the schools, but to complement it, we want to have some happiness screenings where (laughs) if if the kids score low, what we would do is we bring them in and say, Hey, you've scored low on the happiness thing. We've got I a number love of that activities. idea. Come at it the whole different direction. Yes, exactly, exactly. And a low score is going to get you into a fun group. Um, you know, it's going to get you into some activities. Uh, it's going to, you know, get you someone to talk to about how to make life feel a little bit better. How to do things that feel meaningful to you and your soul. You know, different <sighs> things like that. that. Is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do suicide screening, even though there's not much good research on doing it. Mm-hmm. But I do think we should complement it in, in, you know, this specific idea is not in our, our book, but it kind of comes from it. Because as you might remember, we recommend don't just ask about suicide. Ask about what's meaningful. Ask about what brings your mood up. Exactly. That's the strength-based approach of it is that you yes. that you want to pull, you, you want to make sure you talk also about what gets you out of that mood or to use Job, the Job's question of if something magical could happen that would take yes. this away, what would it be? And it gives you this idea of, of um, my patients know that I have this therapeutic magic wand that I keep in my desk drawer. And I'll say, if I could get that out and hang, you know, hand it to you, what would magically happen that you would um, feel better or that you, some of this thinking would uh, evaporate or vanish, at least temporarily, maybe? And the answer is something that gives you so many clues to, to what, who they are and what matters to them and what would literally be a saving grace to them. Yeah. And so this leads to another thing that, Friends, family, loved ones can ask. Um, And, of course, you know I love David Jobes' question of that one thing that would make all your suicidal thoughts go away. Uh, It's a great question. Another one that I have found um, that I I was working with an Alaska native, you pick, um, 18-year-old young woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing a standard suicide assessment and ask about... Uh, have you had some suicidal thoughts? It's not unusual. Yes, I have. She says, I, you know, ask her how often, a lot, all the time, daily. Uh, and then I remember to ask the strengths-based question, which is, and what's happening when you're not thinking about suicide? Yeah. yeah. And she looked almost surprised, like, oh, when I'm not thinking about suicide? And I say, yeah, exactly. She says, I'd be singing. <laughs> and then... I said, okay, singing. And then I said, what else would you be doing? And she said, writing poetry. And and again, like that magic wand that you talked about, it sort of gives us an insight into what would help her therapeutically not think about suicide. And it comes from her. It's not yes. like you are saying, well, I have found that swimming really helps or something. Yes. Yes. Research shows. <laughs> research shows that. <laughs> yes. I like to use a deep voice when I yeah, talk oh, yeah. about research. Well, definitely. Yeah. Yes. yeah. you got to do mm-hmm. that. <laughs> right. And her uh, singing and poetry, right? They're both expressive mm-hmm. things. And so I think to myself, well, part of our work together is going to be to help her express herself 
in the ways that she finds meaningful and therapeutic. Right. Oh, this is just a a wonderful conversation. And I'm trying to think, is there a direction you're going yourself where listeners, I mean, can people come hear you speak or how do they get more of John Summers Flanagan? Well, I do have a blog. It's johnsummersflanagan.com. No hyphen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I I will try to announce when I'm speaking different places. Uh, and of course, right now I have uh, I have a small grant from the Arthur M. Blank Foundation. Uh, to, <laughs> yeah, Arthur Blank is the um, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons. Is oh really one oh. thing. Uh, and he's super interested in Montana, and he has funded a lot of suicide prevention stuff. So I made a proposal. And so right now, one of the things that we're doing is we're doing um, happiness, evidence-based happiness workshops for educators throughout Montana. And so we're, and I have one this afternoon. I'm going to a small school with about 25 educators and I'll talk with them for about an hour and a half about some evidence-based happiness, things that they can weave into their own lives. Sure. And they also can possibly, if they want to, and I don't want to, you know, push teachers to do things that are They're burdensome. Busy because, <laughs> yeah, they already have a ton to do. And but I'm going to encourage them to think about how this might be integrated into their classrooms. Um, and and so it's a very fun project because and, and this came out of Rita and I discovering that. And I'd been doing these full long professional, full day long professional trainings for uh, the assessment and treatment of suicide. And, and they're long, hard days. Um, and so we decided, oh, let's, let's weave in some of the evidence based happiness literature. And by evidence based, I mean, there's some science to support these specific activities. They're not going to just make you be all giggly and happy all the time. But they're really ideas about how to lead a meaning a meaningful life, which we see as helping address suicide in a preventative way. This is wonderful. So it's johnsummersflanagan.com, mm-hmm. and people can read your uh, information there or look to see where you're going to speak. And maybe if you're up in Montana, you're going to be very lucky because <laughs> you're closer. Yeah. And I do end up other places. I was just in Eastern Michigan uh, this last weekend uh, to do a talk on what's called Tough Kids Cool Counseling, um, which is another book that we have that is for practitioners. So it was all practitioners. Um, We also have uh, the MontanaHappinessProject.com, which is um, our little LLC that Rita and I uh, created. And the, the mission of that is to work with nonprofits, to work with government agencies, to work with corporations collaboratively to help increase happiness and reduce suicide. Um, okay. so I love so. coming at it the other way. I just think that's brilliant. I, I do think it's got some good traction because there's so much um, uh, focus on negativity, right? Mm-hmm. So much focus on, and I like to ask this question when I'm doing workshops, What's wrong with you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so much focus on that. And certainly we all need to look at what's wrong with us sometimes. But if we get too preoccupied with that, you know, we, we miss, well, well, what's right with you, Margaret? 
exactly. What's what's feeling right in your life and in your heart and in your relationships and in your spirituality or whatever it is. Uh, and and so I'm I'm so happy to be here with you, but also I'm so happy that you're doing the work that you're doing to help educate people about living better lives. Thank you. I I love doing self-work. And so having you on has been a really special treat. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Your presence here at Self Work every week and your growing numbers shows me that there is just such an interest and a need for this kind of podcast that offers information about current mental health issues, depression, PTSD, anxiety, and even suicidal thinking. If you have any questions for me, email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com or leave me a message on my website at SpeakPipe. You can also find that SpeakPipe app in your show notes. And I certainly will read your question. I can't answer all of them anymore because there are too many. But I do try to save them and then group them together so that I can try to answer them as best I can. Perhaps not specifically yours, but at least answer the questions noted. Got a lot of stuff going on in April and May. Going to be excited to share with you. I'm talking with several groups of construction workers whose suicide rate is very high for their occupation. So that's in early April and also in early May. And if you'd like for me to speak to your group, please contact me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. I'd be more than happy to do that either virtually or, of course, in person. Thank you for honoring me and self-work with your time. Please take very, very good care of yourself, your loved ones, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.